Hey everyone, welcome back to Chris's Courses. These are my lessons from our Wednesday night class at the Westlink Church of Christ, where I'm the Family Life Minister. And I'm recording these in my office, though, instead of on a Wednesday night, because you know I, I appreciate the time that we have in uh, classes to do discussion and talk through these sort of things, but that doesn't translate too well for a podcast sort of medium. So, you know, I encourage you, if you're able, to, to join us on Wednesday nights so that we can discuss these things together. But I'm also glad that we have this place where I, I can share this with you. But I encourage you to join in the discussion here. You know, post a comment on Facebook or uh, wherever you find this, and we can continue talking about these ideas. Uh, as, as we're going through Genesis, right, this series that we're doing now is called Questions in Genesis. We're thinking about what are the questions that this book is trying to get us to ask about who God is and who we are, and how some of the questions that it brings up in its ancient time are still pretty relevant to us as long as we're looking at them in, in the right way. We're not bringing in the wrong sort of questions or trying to answer questions that Genesis really isn't concerned about. So we spent a lot of time so far just focusing on the first three chapters of Genesis because they are so foundational to establish the goodness of creation, the goodness and harmony that existed between humanity and the earth, but then also looking at the ways that sin comes in and distorts all of those relationships. Uh, so we saw that in chapter 3, the way that a consequence of sin is uh, messing up the relationship between humans and animals, between men and women, between humans and the earth. And we talked last time about how our job is to work against those consequences or those curses in some, some cases. We're not called to maintain them or to think that some of those things, the, the hierarchies, the power imbalances, the abuse that can go on, uh, that that's something that God wants. It's clearly not. If you look at the beginning, and especially as Christians, as we look at what God has done through Christ to deal with the consequences of sin. And so we're called to, as much as we can, to restore the goodness that we had in the beginning and the goodness that's still inherent in us as God's people who have still the image of God. But now we're in a different phase. Today we're going to try and cover as much as we can of chapters 4 to 11. We're going to skip the flood story that's in the middle. We'll look at that next time. But see the way that, that sin continues to have effects on the world. But as we go into this, we want to think about how much are Adam and Eve to blame for future sin. Right, here's another important place, as we talked about so much, of separating what is the view of Genesis and what is the view coming from later Christian interpretation. Right, don't immediately jump to Romans chapter 5 and what Paul says there. Let's look at what Genesis has to say first, and then we can go deeper in. So here we see the further decline of humanity, and it all starts with the first murder. So I'm going to pick up in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, with the story of Cain and Abel. Now, the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Uh, the word produce sounds like the word Cain. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, well, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So we saw last time one of the the consequences that comes from sin that God told Eve about is that there's going to be grief in having children. And, and I talked last time about how you can actually interpret that as more than just that you know giving birth is going to be painful, although I've heard that's true. Uh, it's referring, God's talking about all the ways that having a family, trying to raise kids, trying to be a parent can cause a lot of grief. And so we see that played out here in this first story. So we have Cain, um, and you see his name comes from Eve saying she's produced him. Abel, his name probably is related to the word for a breath or vapor. It's, it's the word that the book of Ecclesiastes uses over and over, right? Vanity of vanities. It's probably the same sort of word, right? He's just, he's a breath, he's here, and he's gone, which kind of tells you, right? That's hinting at uh, how long he's going to be in this story, not too long. Uh, so one of these brothers cares for, for animals, the other is a farmer, and so we're seeing here a common tension throughout history between farmers and shepherds. Uh, I think that's even in the, the musical Oklahoma, right? That the farmer and the cowman, they should be friends, but they're often not. It goes back even here in the beginning. Uh, again, we're seeing the ways that, that Genesis is kind of presenting these, these archetypes, these ways that humanity interacts with one another. And so Cain and Abel each, each offer a sacrifice, but a question that I don't know if Genesis wants us to ask this, but I think it's maybe important to think about, well, why do they do that? You know, in Genesis, it's not really a question. That that's just what you do. You offer sacrifices to God or to the gods. But I think it's important to notice that this isn't something that the Lord asks for. Right? He doesn't come along and say, make sure that every now and then you're giving me a sacrifice from whatever you grow or whatever you are shepherding. Uh, there's no law, right? That comes in much later when God outlines acceptable sacrifices and those sort of things. And you, know, you can look at it in a positive sense of, well, this is just a way of showing gratitude to God. Of They're thankful that God has provided these things for them, and so they're trying to give something back. But I think it's important that we recognize that sacrifice is a human method of pleasing or even appeasing God's. Uh, it's common in all ancient cultures, not just Israel. This is just what you do to show the gods that you're grateful to them. Again, if you're looking at it in a positive sense or in a negative sense for, for much religion, you offered sacrifices so the gods would leave you alone. Right? You don't want them to be upset and angry, and so sacrifices will keep the gods off your back. So it's more about appeasing um, than actually having any sort of relationship with them. So I think it's important you know, to think about the broader scriptural story of the role that sacrifice plays, that maybe it's not actually what God wants, which is what God tells people eventually. So in the prophet Hosea, a verse that Jesus himself will quote more than once, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So God isn't just looking for us to give up certain things. God wants us to live in a way that is oriented around mercy and love and, and faithfulness. That's that mercy that Hosea calls for. It brings in all of those things. Uh, so, you know, Jesus, he sometimes his death is referred to as the sacrifice of sacrifice, that this whole approach to God is 
we should see that it is no longer necessary, and in fact, it never was what God wanted. Because as we see in this story, the human desire to sacrifice to God is what creates the whole tension, the problem in this story. Now, on the other hand, part of the tension is the fact that God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And there's no real explanation for that here in this story. Now, I've seen plenty of explanations for this of, well, Abel, he brought his best, but Cain didn't. He just brought, you know, some, some leftovers. doesn't say that, but that's a way that people will read into it. Even the book of Hebrews uh, will say that Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable, that he offered his by faith. Again, that's an interpretive move, but Genesis doesn't say that. In fact, uh, the way that I heard one writer describe this says that that kind of traditional interpretation is too hard on Cain and too easy on God. I wish God would explain what God was doing here. That's not really the point. The focus is less on why God accepts one sacrifice and not the other, and more on how Cain should respond to this situation. But Cain is angry. That's what God confronts him about, and so we see here something that Jesus himself will talk about in the Sermon on the Mount, that murder is actually connected deep down to anger, right? Anger is the root cause behind a sin uh, that's so awful and obvious and violent. Well, it all starts with when we're angry with someone else, and so we always have to watch what, what are the roots that are growing in my heart and how could they grow out, right? Probably is not going to lead to murder for most of us. But it is going to go further than just that anger if we leave it unchecked. But speaking of you know checking our anger, checking uh, our our impulses, look at how God speaks to Cain here. Does he talk to Cain as if he has no hope of doing what's right? Is he just destined to sin because now he has this fallen, sinful nature, and and the inclination is just he's only going to do what's wrong? Uh, we're going to see Genesis is is trying to work that out, but. At least here, the implication is he can do well. He can make the right choice. Sin, it's depicted here as this kind of destructive force, right? It's lying in wait. It's right at the the door of your tent. But it can be mastered. You know, there doesn't need to be a serpent or a tempter that comes along every time. Sin is going to be there. And yet God clearly seems to assume that, that there's a choice. Humanity has a choice in this matter, no matter where our hearts seem to often be inclined, uh, we are not just at the mercy of sin. All of uh, the Old Testament seems to assume that, that we can do well, but it also acknowledges that most of the time we don't. And so that leads into the rest of our story, picking up in verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. 
Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God had told him, right, sin is crouching at your door. And here Cain just kind of opens the door without any fight and lets it in and kills his brother. So God, again, like we saw with Cain's father, Adam, he comes to him and asks some pretty simple questions. Uh, where are you, right, is, is what he asked in chapter 3. And here he asks, where's your brother? Again, just like when a parent asks who ate all the cookies, God knows, but God wants honesty because that's the path towards healing. But instead, what does Cain do? He lies. He gets dismissive. Right? I'm, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible for him. So we see this is kind of the progression of how we, we think about our sin. Uh, we, we know it's there. We don't really resist it. And then we lie about it. And then we're dismissive of, of what we've done. And you see here this, this idea and their mindset of, of how blood holds life. And so God can hear the cry of Abel's blood coming from the ground. And again, sin is distorting, it's affecting the relationship between the ground and human beings. Since Cain spills blood on the ground, the ground now is not going to produce for him. And at least the way God actually talks about it, it seems like it's more of a natural consequence than some arbitrary punishment that God is putting on Cain. And yet that's the way that Cain looks at it, right? You're doing this to me, God. This is your punishment because, you know, of what happened to have happened, whoever's fault that was. Uh, so again, I think we're seeing here a pattern of there are natural consequences to the th choices that we make because that's the way that God has set the world up to be. And yet we just tend to want to look at it as, well, God's just trying to punish me and God's against me and God hates me. Uh, that's not what we see here. Instead, as, as Cain is saying, oh, this is just too much. Uh, I can't handle it. Um, people might kill me. God gives him a mark. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on this and what this could be. I do want to mention the uh, racist nonsense that says that he, this is where black skin came from. Uh, that's a viewpoint that developed uh, because of a certain situation where, uh, particularly in America, we were trying to excuse uh, our racist policies of slavery, and so people went and found this story and tried to pull that in with no actual bearing on what was really going on. Right? This is the worst kind of interpretation where we're trying to explain a belief we already have, and we're trying to use Scripture almost as a weapon to justify that. Uh, there's, there's no backing for that, but it has been used that way, and I felt it's important to point that out and see how that completely distorts the meaning of Genesis. Because in fact, this mark, whatever it was, served as protection, not a sign of inferiority. Because, you know, God could have just executed Cain here, but instead, he provides a blessing. So we're seeing, again, that even in the midst of human sin, God is offering grace. All right, what, what's the typical way that we tend to respond to violent offenders? And it tends to be with just more violence, right? We think, well, that's justice. You killed somebody, so now we're going to kill you. Uh, that's actually not always the way that God works. And I think if we look at the deepest, truest uh, vision of God's justice, it is something that's more restorative instead of just retributive. So maybe we need to do better with our justice. Now, another question that, that we probably ask and Genesis doesn't seem to ask is, who are these other people that Cain seems so worried about, right? He says, anyone who finds me might kill me. 
And and where does the wife that it mentions come from that he takes that he has? Well, one option is that these are his current siblings or future siblings, but that's not a lot of people, and it seems pretty clear that he's leaving them. Uh, another option that some people present is that, well, God actually created other people, and Adam and Eve were just special. They were in the garden, but other people lived outside of it. And Genesis doesn't say that, but that's a move some people make. And a third option, which I think maybe is the best, is maybe just don't read it so literally. Right? That's, that's not the point of the story. This is a reminder that Genesis is addressing theological questions about who God is and certain aspects of human nature, particularly how prone we are to violence, not to give a biological account of, of humanity. So we're asking the wrong questions, actually, if we're too focused on these other people. So, yeah, the, the real issue here is, what is one, how can religion actually contribute to human violence, and how does God respond to that? How do we see some of these same patterns still today, even as we don't sacrifice in the same ways? And how does God continue to work in spite of some of these negative things? So I want to speed up a little bit here now and skim through some of these next stories. So in the rest of chapter 4, we're seeing more about the beginning of civilization. Uh, one character I want to point out is Lamech. He's described as the first person to take two wives, and I think that verb take is intentional. Uh, so again, we're seeing more of a distortion of the relationship between men and women. Uh, there's a dis uh, disparity in the number even of, of husbands and wives. One husband is taking two women. And also an intensification of retaliation. Right? He mentions how Cain would be avenged sevenfold, but Lamech is going to be avenged sevenfold. Right? If someone, I, I'll kill somebody who wounds me um, and take, you know, fight back 77 times. So again, this retaliation revenge is becoming more and more of a problem we see in there. It also talks about people begin invoking the name of the Lord in verse 26. Uh, now, we don't exactly know what that means, whether that's worship or asking for God's blessings. I do think it's interesting, though, because if you go to the book of Exodus, this is, again, the, the name of God, Yahweh, not just a title or the word God. It, it's God's actual name. Again, God will tell Moses in Exodus that people didn't use this name until God reveals it there at the burning bush but it seems to be presenting it differently here, right? We're, again, we're seeing, just like with the two creation stories, there are different perspectives on how people approached and understood God's relationship, Yahweh's relationship with, with the earth. Shouldn't be a problem for us if we read Genesis on its terms, uh, but it can be if we come at it with a modern approach and modern questions. So jumping ahead, like I said, we're going to skip the flood story until next week. In chapter 10, you get one of the things that everybody loves, a genealogy, a table of nations. And the, the real focus here is just on the fact that all of these people are related to one another. Right? It, it's a broad focus. It's focusing outward. We see this even in the number of names that are used here because there are 70 names. Uh, and 70 is kind of a, a big Bible number, seven or, or multiples of it. It's a sign of completeness. So it's probably more trying to give us a, a broad scope of humanity instead of actually telling us the names of each person, uh, including every single one of them, literally. So it's saying, this is where all these people come from, but see how they all started together. Right? They all come from a common source. 
And it's about the spread of humanity, which leads into the next story in the Tower of Babel. So that's the last story we're going to look at today. So this comes in Genesis chapter 11. Hear me turning the pages of my actual paper Bible. Don't you love those? Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So what's the purpose of this story? It's not really about explaining why there are different languages. That, that can be a secondary reason. But we need to see this, again, with a theological focus of what is God's will for humanity and what is humanity's will and how do they often conflict. So to answer that, we have to look at, well, what did they actually do wrong here? Uh, is there something wrong with humans speaking the same language or with humanity working together? I think we would agree those are probably good things to be able to understand one another, to, to have some sort of unity. Is the problem that they were trying to, to reach God or, or be like God? I think with that, it's actually a misunderstanding of the phrase that they're building to the heavens. Uh, the word for heavens is also the word for sky. So they're really just saying, we want to build this thing up really high. Uh, they want it to be massive. They want it to be secure. It's not really about attaining godhood, even though they do talk about uh, making a name for themselves. Uh, so there is some pride built into this, but uh, it's not seeking something divine, I don't think. I think the real question centers on this idea of, of scattering, whether that's good or bad. And it's unclear where Genesis 11 fits in with Genesis 10 and its table of nations, uh, if this happens after all of that or if ha it happens sometime in the midst of it. But I think there is meant to be some sort of connection, right? If you read back in chapter 10, uh, many times it talks about how this is how they all had their different languages and their own lands and how they spread. And then in the final verse, verse 32, these are the families of Noah's sons. Remember, we skipped ahead till after the flood. According to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So it seems, again, if you're taking this chronologically, you don't have to, but you very well could, that it's showing that in Genesis 10, they did spread abroad and fill the earth, and they had different languages, and you get to chapter 11, and things have changed. Uh, this common language, some would argue, is actually forced. This is the oppressive uniformity of empire, which is where we are meant to think of Babylon. Right? When it talks about Shinar, that, that's where that nation, that empire was located. And, and so the, the people reading this would definitely hear those, those echoes, right? This empire that comes along later, destroys Judah and carries off their people. It's one of the big bad guys in, in the story of Scripture. 
And so if this is more of a oppressive uniformity than just a natural occurring unity, we can see that this is actually a, a negative thing, that they are all together, that they share a common language or in, and are in the same place. The, the overall problem is that they're huddling together when God wants them to spread over the earth. And, and they know this, right? In verse 4, they, they say, otherwise we are going to be scattered over the earth, which is a contradiction of what God said in the beginning, that, that we're meant to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because instead of filling the earth here, they're just all coming to the same place. It, it's this idea of kind of circling the wagons. It's, it's trying to be in our comfort zone instead of going out where God calls us to be. It's a, a self-serving kind of unity rather than the, the kind of unity that God desires. So that's what this tower represents, and, and then God comes down to see it. Again, it's, it's, I think, supposed to be kind of funny. There's some irony here that they make this big, impressive tower that reaches to the heavens, and God can't even see it until he comes down. Again, it's, it's anthropomorphic language, uh, but it's, it's symbolizing uh, kind of this irony of, of how small it actually is compared to God. And so God confuses everything, gives them different languages. Um, it's, it's this idea of not understanding and not listening, which I don't think we should see that as what God actually wants, right? It's not a good thing for us to continue to misunderstand one another, but we should be able to, to hear one another out. Again, it's like the curses of chapter 3, what happened to Cain. These are the consequences of sin, that we need to work against. And so it is a good thing. You know, I was recently in Greece on vacation, and I was very thankful that most people over there, especially they were working in tourism, they spoke English. Uh, and so I didn't have to learn Greek. I, you know, I knew a little bit from learning the New Testament, but nothing that would really help me in any situation. So we can be thankful for that. And yet, you know, that's probably a good example of, well, what's your attitude? I'm thankful that they had learned a second language so that they could speak to us, but I definitely shouldn't go over there and, and expect that everybody should speak my language, even though I'm in their country. Now, that sometimes is a, a stereotype of the ugly American tourist. And so we have to watch for, for that kind of impulse. I think that maybe is what it's talking about here. You know, it, it's also a little bit about technology, because the way they, the reason they can build this tower is because they can uh, put together and bake these bricks and have the mortar that lets them build it up really high. You know, technology, development, is it positive or negative? Well, it, it's really about how you use it. Um, you know, I can use technology with a microphone and the internet to record this and send it out all over the world so that people can listen anytime they want. That's a great thing. And, and I'm, again, I'm thankful that you're listening now, wherever you are. And yet, uh, I think we all go kind of without saying that things like social media can be very destructive. Right? Even in the last week, we've seen reports about the damage that something like Facebook is doing. Even though I'm going to share this on Facebook, we, we see the way that it's harming children, it's harming our relationships, the way that uh, information and, and fake news sometimes is spread. So right, technology, it's, it's not really good or bad. It's a tool. Uh, so we have to pay attention to how we're using it. Are we using it in ways that glorify God, or are we using it in self-serving ways that go against what God wants? Uh, so how do we build towers today? You know, we're not doing it exactly like they did, but there's still ways that we can work together that God wouldn't actually approve of. 
And a lot of times that means trying to remain safe inside instead of going out like God wants. I think this is particularly a temptation in the church, that we think of church as the building, and we come there, and we feel safe, and we feel comfortable for an hour, maybe two, if, if we're trying to get bonus points, and then we go out and just go back to our regular life. Uh, instead of seeing that our time of gathering for worship on a Sunday is a time that we can be re-energized to go back out into the world, to live out the mission, and to actually be the church as we go out. And I, I think another important lesson here is that God values diversity, that there are different languages, and that's not a bad thing, that there are different cultures and ethnicities and ways of worshiping, and God values all of it. It's a unity that comes in diversity, not uniformity. We, see, we know this because in the end, this is the picture that we get in the book of Revelation. I think it's interesting how much every week I jump from the first book of Scripture to the last book, because there we see every tribe and tongue and language praising God. So it's not that we have to all be the same, whether it's our language or our customs or the way we worship. Each one of us is given a, a unique way that we can approach God, and all of these differences are something God has given us, and they can be good. And we should work together as much as we can as long as that work is oriented towards God's mission, not just our mission of making ourselves comfortable. God does often call us out of our comfort zone, but that's where we can be God's blessing on the creation that God has made for us. Well, thanks everyone. We'll pick up next week and try and cover all the flood story. We'll see how much we can get to then, but thanks for being with us this time.